is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Election Day edition of The Dan Proft Show, Election Day in Georgia, of course, and uh, the eve of the meeting of Congress to count the electoral vote, certify, and, as we know, object to the slates of electors from certain states. We'll see that play out on Wednesday, and we'll see how the outcome in Georgia may impact what transpires on Wednesday. But before we even get to that, I feel compelled to revisit the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, since he felt compelled to go on with Martha McCallum on Fox News yesterday and uh, respond to questions about the release of the phone call between he and his legal team and President Trump and his legal team over the weekend, what amounted to a settlement conference with respect to pending litigation that has been filed by the Trump campaign. Raffensperger, throughout the course of Monday, was a bit cagey about whether or not he knew about the release of the call and authorized the release of the call with the president. Sort of odd if your calling card is going to be transparency and honesty. Where else would the tape of the call had come from other than his office. It clearly wasn't the Trump campaign that released it. And so Martha McCallum pressed him on that issue. Did you did you say, OK, let, let's go ahead and release the audio of the phone call? The information's out there. It is what it is. That's not an answer to my question. Are you going to answer my question? Did you were you aware of the decision and were you in favor of the decision to release the phone call, sir? I think that we had to respond to the president's uh, Twitter and we responded with the facts that were in the call. And that's how it got out there. So okay. now the world can just see what was in there. They can make up their own decisions, listen to the whole thing. So why be less than forthright about it? He tweeted about it. And so I said we should release a tape of the call. And when I became aware that we had a tape of the call so that uh, people can make their own decisions, why be squirrely about it? It uh, screams um, lack of accountability. I, I don't know. It just screams untrustworthiness, doesn't it? Uh, Also, the the comment that he made when McCallum pressed him to respond to David Perdue's criticism of Raffensperger for releasing the call. The issues that President Trump has been raising about all of his contentions that he didn't have a fair vote here in Georgia, that has been a major distraction for the two senators to be able to run their race. In fact, he's in effect been suppressing the Republican turnout. And so uh, we need to really have a strong Republican turnout. I believe that if you listen to that tape, you'll believe that President Trump's big focus is not tomorrow. It's actually Wednesday, January 6th. Well, I mean, that may be uh, what his focus is. And we're going to learn more when we see him at the rally this evening. But I I just want to ask you once again to respond specifically to Senator Perdue, who said that he thought it was inappropriate and disgusting to release this audio. What how do you respond to him on that charge? Senator Perdue still owes my wife an apology for all the death threats she got after he asked for my resignation. And I've not heard one peep from that man since. He wants to call me face-to-face, man-to-man. I'll talk to him off the record. But he hasn't done that. And then I'll release his call after that. So he called for your resignation and somebody allegedly threatened the life of your wife. What does one have to do with the other? Is David Perdue, when he makes a call for a public official to take a specific act and somebody responds, allegedly responds intemperately, ignorantly, that's David Perdue's fault? That makes no sense. It's off topic. What about David Perdue's criticism of your decision? Defend your decision. Doesn't seem like Raffensperger is very interested in defending his decisions. He's very interested in defending 
his count, his story, the data he says is correct, but he's not very interested in showing his work. It it, uh, doesn't inspire a lot of confidence, and it uh, guarantees, regardless of what happens tonight, it seems to me, that um, the acrimony in Republican ranks in Georgia will continue. President Trump saying at the rally last night that he'll be back in a year and a half to support who was ever primarying Brian Kemp. That's an indication of the acrimony as well. It goes in both directions. But I also wonder if that spills out into the larger Republican Party. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Susan Crabtree. She's RealClearPolitics.com's White House and National Political Correspondent. Susan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, it definitely been a united front, some $200 million worth of a united front on the Dem side with respect to Ossoff and Warnock. And uh, right up until the polls open, uh, a lot of acrimony on the GOP side in Georgia. Yes, unbelievably so. You had that spill out on national TV yesterday with that Martha McCallum interview. It just seemed like it was quite remarkable that you have a secretary of state going after the sitting senator that is in the same party. And his political fate will determine, could determine, you know, Republicans need to hang on to one of those seats to maintain majority in the chamber. Political fortunes depend on him winning the Republican parties. And you have a secretary of state basically going after him and calling him that man. Quite counterproductive to be doing that on national TV. Well, not to mention, I mean, you know, whatever the disagreements are with Trump, he's got his numbers. We've got our numbers. We believe our numbers are correct. He clearly doesn't. And you can leave it there. And that's why we have courts of law. Instead, he sort of suggests that Trump is suppressing the vote. I mean, with due respect, whatever you think of uh, all of Trump's decisions, I mean, he's the one that got 74 million votes. He's the one that got whatever, two, two and a half million votes in Georgia. He's the one that uh, turned out 25,000 people in Dalton yesterday. I, I, I don't know that it's helpful for your party in Georgia to be suggesting that or accurate to suggest that. Absolutely. It's a, it was a bizarre situation and um, really shows that I mean, there is a lot of people out there, including <laughs> prognosticators, media prognosticators, who are saying that this effort to highlight on Trump's be, uh, part and other Republicans uh, who are objecting, going to be objecting to the electors on Wednesday, that this is going to suppress the Georgia Republican vote because it's suggesting that there is no faith in the system, that the voters will have no faith in the electoral system. It's something that even President Trump has said in that call with Raffensperger that you are helping to suppress the vote because you're not really doing anything to uh, investigate these incidents of election fraud that uh, Trump has brought up. Of course, you had uh, the election official, the top election official in Georgia, or actually it's his Raffensperger's deputy, go point by point to many of Trump's the, the charges that Trump made in that phone call. But basically they're saying that this, all this bringing up um, incidents of election fraud or allegations is, in and of itself is going to suppress the vote. Now, I think that's just conventional wisdom. And oftentimes in Washington, conventional wisdom is wrong. We won't know that until the vote happens today. There's been a lot of pre-voting. There's about 3.1 million votes that have already taken place in early voting. Some of those in there's indications that there are more votes coming from Democratic strongholds of the state, and there has been more minority voting than even during the election itself, the general election. So it looks like, we don't know for sure, but it looks like that Democrats are coming into Election Day with an advantage. So 
the vote will depend, the Republican, whether Republicans can hang on to at least one of those seats will depend on people in person voting today. And that was true actually for the general as well. You had uh, P- David Perdue getting um, more, much, many, many more votes on election day um, than the Democratic, uh, his Democratic opponent, uh, Ossoff. So, you know, it, a lot will depend on what happens today. But this idea that just talking about uh, election fraud is suppressing the GOP vote, I think that's just uh, a lark right now. You can't, there's been a lot of talk about that, but I, I don't think that has any basis in fact until the vote happens. Uh, but but it does say the the one um, analogy that seems to hold from November third is that uh, the election is a referendum on Trump again. Um, I, how else to explain the fact that uh, uh, Purdue and Ossoff, Warnock and and Leffler? I mean, at least according to some of the the final polling I saw, forty nine, forty nine, forty nine, forty nine. Uh, you know, in a state that uh, right now Trump is down eleven thousand votes. It was basically you know fifty point something to forty nine point something. It seems like uh, it, it's a mirror image of Biden-Trump. That's true. But also, uh, when you look in the general, uh, David Perdue, in the state, the reason why we have a runoff right now is because you have to hit a majority, mm-hmm. 50% plus one, basically. And neither um, Purdue or Leffler did that. So that's why we're in this. But they did win um, in terms of they got more votes than their Democratic opponents. And so that meant that there were people splitting the ticket, not voting for Trump and voting for David Perdue and Leffler. So, I mean, yes, you can say that. I think the special election, when you have a runoff like this, you had all hands on deck. This is a unique situation where you have the entire country focused and all this money just pouring into the state and resources and people knocking on doors. And that changes the dynamic completely. But if you look at the general, you did have more people splitting their tickets or even not... Uh, voting for Trump and then not voting for the senators at all, voting against Trump and not voting for the senators at all, Republicans. So I don't know if you can say that, um, that it's a referendum on Trump. Uh, certainly Trump is a huge factor. <laughs> yeah. There's no denying that. She is Susan Crabtree, RealClearPolitics.com's White House and national political correspondent. Susan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It was the seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Yesterday at uh, the Dalton, Georgia rally, Mike Pence spoke before President Trump spoke. Obviously, the focus was on the two Senate races up today, but there was time to talk a little bit about Wednesday as well, and Pence had this to say. I share the concerns of millions of Americans about voting irregularities, and I promise you, come this Wednesday, we'll have our day in Congress. We'll hear the objections. We'll hear the evidence. But tomorrow is Georgia's day. President Trump built upon that to sort of make a reference to his vice president. 
Our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. You're going to get straight shots. He's going to call it straight. Well, if he calls it straight, then he's going to serve largely in a ceremonial role of presiding over the counting of the electors that have been submitted by the 50 states. So I don't know what the president's expectation is. He didn't really develop that. So we'll have to see. Josh Hawley, the first Republican senator to announce publicly that he would be lodging an objection tomorrow, was on with our friend Brett Baer yesterday. My point is, this is my only opportunity during this process to raise an objection and to be heard. I don't have standing to file lawsuits. I'm not a prosecutor anymore. I used to be, but I'm not anymore. I I can't investigate claims of voter fraud on my own. But I do have a responsibility in this joint session of Congress to either say I've got no problem with it or I do have a problem with it. Don't you have a responsibility to tell them that it's not going to be President Trump as of January 21st as well? Well, Brett, I'm trying to do something more than just that. I mean, this is about the integrity of our elections. And this is about taking a stand where you can take a stand. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller, Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You suggest, and you particularly focus in on Cruz and, and Holly because uh, they're both fairly respected originalist officers of the court. And uh, you suggest that uh, what they're doing is improper. It shouldn't be done. Yeah, well, it is improper, and they know it's improper. The, you know, the, the If you notice when Halley was answering or not answering Bear's questions, he wouldn't say what he was going to object to. He just kept saying, I'm going to object. This is my only opportunity to stand up and object. But notice what he didn't say, which is what Wednesday is about. He didn't say, I'm going to object to Pennsylvania's votes. I'm going to object to Wisconsin's votes. And I think what these guys have done is they don't want to be in a position of making the Republican Party against the enfranchisement or having the Republican Party disenfranchise the voters in states that Republicans are going to need in the future to win elections if they ever want to win the presidency again. That's not a position they want to be in. So I think they've come up with this electoral commission as something that they know will lose, but that they can call for, and that will be their objection. They won't object to any particular state, which will mean if that happens, that'll mean the House, they can make as much noise as they want. If they don't get a senator who goes along with them, then no state's votes are going to be objected to. And they'll just pretend that this electoral commission is the, uh, you know, the be all and end all of their objection. And of course, that thing's going to go down in flames because it's not going to have enough votes. And then, you know, we'll all be able to get on with our lives. I can hope at least. Let me let me respond in two ways to that. One is I agree that um, they're doing this, recognizing that it's not going to, to happen, that they're doing this as a way to put a marker down. Now, in the conversation that Holly had with Bear and McCallum, they did talk about Pennsylvania specifically and Pennsylvania Supreme Court's action and inaction specifically. So that may be part of it. Now, remember, Hawley is not part of the election commission, just to restate there. That's you know, right. Cruz right. and 11 others. Hawley really focused on, so he sort of talked generally about election irregularities, and then he focused, and I think this will be the thrust of probably his comments, since this is the thrust of his uh, rise to prominence, uh, focusing on social media, the big tech companies. But as you know, with two hours to debate each of the states that are raised, and you have to raise them in writing, specific states, you know that there are going to be some senators uh, and members of uh, the House that are in safe districts or safe states, as, it, as the case may be, that will go specifically after 
Pennsylvania and uh, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court will go after the indefinitely confined designees in Wisconsin and, and some of the other states. And, and it is interesting to note that among those, and I noted this yesterday, among those uh, Republican senators who've signed on to object, Ron Johnson seems to be the only one in a state that is really you know up for grabs where he is really taking a political risk in uh, signing on to this. You know, look, I want to be clear. All the things that you just went through, there are a number of aspects of Pennsylvania's election that are objectionable, not least the illegal extension of the three days on Election Day. There's probably three or four that we could go through, but that's the main one that's been before the Supreme Court since October, and the court won't act on it. I wrote a column that kind of analyzed what the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin did and came to the conclusion that at least one big category of the votes they were talking about, which is these uh, democracy in the park events where they didn't actually give ballots to state election officials, which is what state law requires. I think those 17,000 votes should have been thrown out, but that doesn't mean they were 17,000 votes for Biden. You know, and even if they were three to one or four to one for Biden, it's still not enough to get over the uh, 22,000 or whatever it is that uh, he lost by. So what I'm saying is there's a number of things to object to. And, you know, while, I, while I've tried to be realistic about how this is coming out, I've tried to point out what I think e- each one of them is. But here's the thing that you also, if you're going to be persnickety about that, and I have been, and I can understand why others should be, because this is an important issue going forward, regardless of what happens with Trump. But the other thing, if you're going to follow the law, then you've got to follow the law. Under Section 5 of the federal election law, if the states certify by six days before the inaugural, the uh, electoral votes are counted, as a matter of federal law, that is dispositive. So they don't, you know, it says in, the, in federal law that, you know, if this is resolved at the state level, because under the Constitution, the states are sovereign when it comes to picking the president. It's not even the people, it's the states. Uh, if the states have resolved this, Josh Hawley has to respect that because he's a federal official and federal law says that we respect the state certification at that point. So should we object to these things? Should we address them for future purposes? Absolutely. Uh, and if, if they were to have an electoral commission, not for the purpose of delegitimizing the current election, but for curing the problems going forward and even uh, even though I've always been someone who's been opposed to this, imposing some federal rules on what states are allowed to do and not allowed to do if we're going to go down this crazy path of doing mail-in voting, fine. I think that's that's all to the good to do that. But I, I just think if this thing is going to be a debacle about delegitimizing the election we had, where people like Josh Hawley, a Supreme Court clerk who graduated from Yale Law School and well knows he can read a statute just like I can, um, under federal law, what happened, what has already happened is dispositive. His role on Wednesday is to watch the votes get down. More with Andy McCarthy when we come back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. 
We're back with NRO's Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, and uh, the Election Count Act of 1887 does provide an opportunity to object, right? Uh, well, it's the law says. <clears throat> I think I happen to think this part of the law is unconstitutional, but the law right, does but, say. But the law is the law at senator, present. Well, okay, but then I don't. I don't ever want to hear for if everybody wants to take that position. Fine. But then don't come back and tell me that you're really offended that the, the deep state and the swamp wants to federalize our elections, because that's precisely what you're doing. If you're taking the position that Congress can execute states on their elections to dispose of their electoral votes, that's a longtime Democratic position. So let's not pretend that, you know, we're all you know, limited government conservatives, because we're not. I, I think um, you make an important point, not just about the safe harbor provision in federal law, but about, you know, remember, let's let's remember way back four weeks ago, <laughs> <right>? when <laughs> we were, in, in, you know, way back, you know, five lifetimes ago, four weeks ago, uh, before before December 8th and before December 14th, and we, we talked about in this show, you know, you're on clocks here, because we were talking about all the litigation yes. that was being filed. We were totally assessing right. the legal strategy and so forth. You're on a December 8th clock. We talked about this with you. We're on a December 8th clock. We're on a December yes. 14th clock. And as you go through that process, you know, your options winnow and so that's exactly what's happened and and i think and i i know you understand this but i i want to give voice to it because i i don't want to be dismissive of the exasperation the way that some are not talking about you which is to say right we have these we have these uh these arenas for dispute resolution and you know what they failed us that's what people are saying they failed us the pennsylvania supreme court failed us and then the united states supreme court failed us and uh we've had uh, and, and maybe the Trump legal team failed us, too, but they raised real issues that should have been investigated mm-hmm. further. So we got substantive answers to some of the concerns or some of the irregularities, some of the wild statistical anomalies. And we're left unsatisfied because we don't have good answers there. And there's probably blame to spread around at least some of, if not all of and more, the categories I mentioned. And I just um, and I find the whole thing unsatisfying. And so I'm sort of of the position, knowing that the Democrats are ends justify the means types, that we should start playing by their rules, which is to say no rules to try to get some justice here. Well, let let me just say uh, about that, because I think there's a lot of force to what you just said. Um, But the, the problem with this whole escapade since November 3rd, has been that we look at the election as if the election was the only thing going on. And because that's, it's a complex problem. The only way you can deal with complex problems is to kind of sort of focus in on them to, at the expense of everything else. But life doesn't work that way. There's a, a number of different interests involved. And one of the interests, one of the important interests is you have to have a president who's up and running and ready to go on January 20th, which requires some preparation. And it used to be the law in our country until the Constitution was changed that the president didn't get inaugurated until, was it March? I forget. March. It was yeah. March 20th or March 4th, but it was March, right? So if you had that system again, you would be able to focus more. You'd have more time and you'd be able to focus more on the election. You wouldn't be trying to prove fraud on a compressed time frame, which is 
a very, very difficult thing to do unless there's some screaming evidence of fraud. But the reason that the Constitution got changed is we found that that was a terrible way to run the government, to have a lame duck president for, you know, six months or whatever it was. And that was the reason it got moved back. And the reason I, I bring that up is there simply is no perfect solution here. You know, we can decide after this experience that we need to focus like a laser beam on nothing but the election. And what we'll be doing is disserving the preparation for the next president to be up and running and ready to go at noon on Inauguration Day. Um, and I just think it, it's very easy to miss that now because this has been so controversial. But the fact is there are other concerns here. And the most important concern for the United States is that somebody is ready to be president at noon on January 20th. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor of National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, always appreciate your time. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Switching gears from our talk of uh, matters Georgia Senate related and uh, January 6th related, in light of uh, the announcement made by Bojo yesterday, Boris Johnson, British Prime Minister that he would be reinstituting lockdowns, a lockdown for the next uh, month and a half. You may only leave home for limited reasons permitted in law, such as to shop for essentials, to work if you absolutely cannot work from home, to exercise, to seek medical assistance. A uh, good rundown of the uh, real-world study of the impact of lockdowns. A good uh, editorial at the uh, American Institute for Economic Research, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof, Dan Prof Show, on Parler at Dan Prof as well. Uh, one of the studies back assessing the lockdowns in the spring in the UK found the following in response to the uh, assertion that uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions, lockdowns, save millions of lives. Uh, the researchers find that uh, the methods involved in that claim involve circular reasoning. The purported effects are pure artifacts which contradict the data. Moreover, we demonstrate that the United Kingdom's lockdown was both superfluous and ineffective. It's from June of last year, looking at the lockdowns imposed by 11 European countries, including Britain. And here we are in January of 2021, some seven months later, and it's lockdown whack-a-mole. Why? Well, and part of the reason is uh, the public seems to like this very much. Uh, rather shocking, but true, is uh, from a YouGov poll on the topic, 80% of Brits support going into another national lockdown. 79% support, 16% oppose only. So you can understand the incentives that Boris Johnson is facing. It doesn't make the decision right. It certainly doesn't make it courageous, but it makes it understandable when you've induced enough panic that uh, people are willing to act against their 
real interests as opposed to their perceived ones, their real interests of being a free being as compared to their perceived interest in saving their lives, living safely. But the messaging sort of doesn't matter and pointing out, I mean, at least in certain quarters, just like pointing out the hypocrisy of politicians doesn't seem to have a particular impact. Just as like assessing the costs and benefits of policies that have actually been pursued doesn't seem to have an impact. Because for uh, a large percentage of the population, they are apparently fine with the notion that when it comes to the choice between models elevated by public health professionals or politicians versus real-world studies, we'll take the models and try to change our innate nature. Because isn't that what's being done? Isn't that what they're suggesting? Politicians and the public health functionaries, we have these models. They say lockdowns work. There are these real-world studies that suggest lockdowns don't work. They're ineffective and counterproductive. The costs outweigh the benefits. Well, then we will continue to bend, blame, right? You got together with your family during Christmas. That's why my model doesn't work. Can't have that. We'll continue to bend man to our will as we're trying to bend nature to our will to validate our model. And if uh, we fail, we'll kill you trying. We'll not die trying. We'll kill you trying. Holman Jenkins writing in the Wall Street Journal that um, official lying, this is from Jenkins' piece, official lying about things large and small has been a staple of COVID politics. The letters to college students threatening them with arrest if they don't quarantine. The interstate travel bans, in quotes, that were never enforced. The death counts that swept up anybody who died of any cause while infected with COVID. Arguably, it began on day one. I don't go to the doctor for a cold or flu, and neither do 80 to 95% of you. And the 80 to 95%, that range is essentially the range of the asymptomatic to the mildly symptomatic cases. So once... Wuhan hospitals were besieged with severe cases. It was a waste of time asking ourselves if the virus was here. Holman Jenkins argues it was here. The block flights, the testing of recent arrivals were so much hand-waving so our government could be seen as doing something. In reality, it was going to be up to us to do our best to stop the spread. Lockdowns are imagined to be a kind of enforced social distancing. They aren't. Mandatory business closures don't stop people from spreading the disease. Letting businesses stay open doesn't force people to spread the disease. People spread by their own decisions, moment by moment, about when, where, and how to expose themselves to risk, which actually, Jenkins points out, did sneak into the public arena in the form of admissions from governors like Charlie Baker, Massachusetts, and even St. Andrew of COVID-19 in New York, where he could see that the lockdowns were... Remember, he was talking to... uh, those Orthodox uh, Jewish folks about uh, the state's posture towards their community. And he said, you know, lockdowns, ham-handed, maybe it's not the best thing, but it's sort of what we need to do to indicate we're doing something. Right. And uh, Jenkins points out, too, just in terms of some thinking about some of the costs, the opportunity costs that have been paid in particular, he argues that uh, perhaps the worst decision that was made was the failure to pursue highly promising vaccine candidates days after the virus was sequenced last January, a year ago. 
Operation Warp Speed was triumphant in compressing their normal development process in ways that wouldn't make sense with shareholder money. Indisputable now is that we should have junked the normal process, accepted more vaccine risk in return for the prospective benefit of saving thousands of lives and trillions of dollars in lost wages in 2020, and particularly accepting heightened risk with respect to those for whom the vaccine is most relevant over the age of 65, comorbidities, right? Because, you know, and all of these messaging errors or uh, malicious messaging, depending on how cynical you are, are connected. The perception that many still have to this day because of the propagandizing of the press corps that there is not an exponential difference in risk between somebody who is healthy and in their 30s and 40s and someone who is 65 or 75 and over, comorbidities or not. I mean, it's by orders of magnitude, like a factor of a thousand. But that's not people's understanding because that understanding has been purposely attacked. And so... We're on this merry-go-round. And I guess, as we'll talk in the next hour to Alex Berenson, it's going to be a long, painful slog to get off of it. You can never surrender. podcast of the show at danprofshow.com Welcome back to the show. Building on uh, what I was discussing before the break, particularly with uh, that last piece of Holman Jenkins' column in the Wall Street Journal about the failure to be less risk-averse with respect to vaccine development after it had been mapped in January of last year, year ago, particularly as it pertains to older people, as we came to know fairly quickly, who are much more vulnerable than young in terms of risk aversion for vaccine development and vaccine deployment. Well, uh, even outlets that uh, are generally speaking headmaidens to the left are taking stock of this. Annie Lowry writing in The Atlantic about growing old alone. Isolation has taken a tremendous emotional toll on many older Americans. Thanks for joining the club, Annie Lowry in The Atlantic. Uh, As she writes, as the country plunged into a deep and unusual economic recession last year, it also plunged into a deep and unusual social recession, atomizing families and friends, evaporating hours of laughter, care, and touch. Nobody hit as hard as America's seniors. They bore the brunt of the isolation. Many older Americans spent months discriminated against, frightened, and alone. Listen to this statement from David Grabowski, who's a professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. When we look back on this in the years to come, I imagine there's going to be a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking about whether it was a good idea to blockade older adults in their nursing home rooms for eight, nine, ten months out of the year without letting them have access to their families. I think we are going to look back and say, What the hell were we doing? What we were doing was failing to save seniors' lives or maintain their livelihoods. Some uh, uh, survey research on this, a survey conducted by Altarum, a nonprofit healthcare research and consulting group, finds uh, drastic reductions in social connections among nursing home residents. 
5% say they had visitors nearly three times a week compared with more than half before the virus hit. Nearly all said they did not leave the care facility for a meal or go shopping compared with 40% before COVID-19. Only one in four was going outside for fresh air. Half said they no longer had access to activities such as art classes or group exercise. Nearly 90% said they could no longer eat meals in the dining room. Two-thirds said they no longer left left their rooms to socialize with their peers. Uh, Is that living? That's my commentary. Is that living? That's uh, protecting seniors? Meanwhile, uh, Andy Cuomo and uh, other governors, the Ava Perona of East Lansing, Whitmer, my home state, Governor Pritzker, sending the infected back into nursing homes, not allowing family in. You know, one of the things with respect to nursing homes, the importance of family in addition to uh, that uh, social connection with their family member is, of course, the uh, role as an accountability mechanism to make sure their loved one is being treated properly in the home. And this is nothing against nursing care or long-term care facility workers, but, I mean, it's just a fact. That's not what we did. Harvard Medical School public health professor looked back and say, what the hell were we doing? That question, how many areas of COVID policy do you think we'll be asking that question about in the years to come? What the hell were we doing? This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. My uh, alma mater in the news and uh, normally, as you've heard me say on the show, when that is the case, the value of my degree declines. But I'm not sure. I'm a bit uh, befuddled by this development. It's a useful study that doesn't quite go enough on the conclusion side of it. But I'll develop this. Northwestern University economist C. Caribou Jackson did a study on the social and emotional skill development and student behavior in Chicago, in part because he party picked Chicago, not just because he's close there in Evanston, but because Chicago Public School System regularly tests kids' social and emotional skills along with academic test scores. So what he did is he looked at 150,000 ninth graders in Chicago public high schools from 2011 to 2017, and he um, surveyed them to understand how much effort they believe they put into schoolwork, how they feel about their relationship with peers, and quantified those survey results. Here's the interesting thing in terms of the results of this working paper. It hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but let's suggest that it'll stand up to peer review for the purposes of the discussion. In part, I think it will because it's sort of intuitive. Here's what he finds, the upshot. Students with the weakest eighth-grade academic records, most likely to drop out of high school, received larger benefits from attending one of Chicago's most effective schools, while more advantaged students were more likely to attend those higher-quality schools in the first place. To put some numbers to it, A disadvantaged student in the bottom 10% would be 3.4 percentage points more likely to graduate from high school, 2.2 percentage points more likely to enroll in college, and 2.1% less likely to be arrested by attending a high school in the top 15% of effectiveness compared to an average high school. And, you know, small percentages, but the big student population, 350,000 kids in the Chicago public school system, not to mention, obviously, trying to help as many kids as you can, as quickly as you can, is sort of the imperative, isn't it? The interesting thing is the the author... (laughs) finds this revelatory. 
the author writes, our problem in America isn't figuring out which, which schools serve upper middle class students well, but how to educate children living in poverty. And this study is shining a light in a new direction. Is it? Or is this study almost screaming, yes, provide kids without the means to go to better schools, the means to go to better schools, and it improves their educational outcomes. That's not a new direction. Those are school choice programs going on in two dozen states. Oh, and by the way, Illinois is one of them. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by John Schilling, who is the president of the American Federation for Children. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi there. Uh, so the, I just the study uh, uh, or this working paper that is uh, awaiting peer review from uh, this Northwestern University economist, anything surprising to you about it other than maybe the author's characterization of the results? Well, look, great teaching helps all kids. One of the things that uh, as an organization we strongly believe in is that, you know, every kid is different. Every kid learns differently. And I think this is the reason that as an organization, we believe that, you know, every family should be able to choose the best educational environment for their child is because every kid learns differently and some kids will thrive in different environments. No question. What has been the trajectory of school choice programs and the adoption of school choice opportunities by families over the last even just few years of the Trump uh, administration, but over the last 15 years as, as these school choice programs seem to have multiplied? Well, Dan, it's doubled in the last 10, 15 years or so. Right now, there are 26 states plus the District of Columbia that have 55 publicly funded private school choice programs. Those are voucher programs, tax credit scholarship programs, education savings accounts programs. And there's about 550,000 kids benefiting from these programs right now. In addition to that, you also have public charter schools that are in 44 states, over 3 million kids. And I think what you see looking at these two alternatives to the the traditional system is that families are really, really interested in this. And this is certainly something that our polling bears out. When you have polling that shows that 70% of parents with school-aged children support school choice, uh, that ought to be a pretty loud message to policymakers. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to demand. And so supply is really the issue. I mean, is that fair? So right now, I will just tell you, across the 50 states, there are roughly 1 million available seats in private schools, unfilled seats in private schools. For charter schools, facilities have always been a challenge for charter schools because, frankly, you've got a lot of school districts around the country that have vacant space, but they make it very difficult for charter schools to rent those facilities. So capacity is definitely a challenge. Uh, there are certainly groups out there that are working on expanded capacity. And, and I think, you know, from the perspective of the American Federation for Children, if we can pass really well-designed uh, private school choice programs where scholarship amounts are, are at a reasonably high level, we believe that you will find, uh, you know, more folks who will come in there and start new schools. We think that's we think that's a good thing. Yeah, and I mean, it's sort of you can, as you were insinuating, I, I know in Chicago where I live, the waiting list to get into one of the charter schools is some fifteen, twenty thousand families long. You talk about the vacancies in private school. That's not necessarily a function of demand. It's a function of or, or desire. It's a function of affordability. And so, not every state has scholarship programs or scholarship programs to the level that make it doable for uh, lower-income families. And so that's the crux of it. But I, the charter school sort of gives you an indication of what financing would mean in, with respect to private school opportunities. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that we always try to point out to everybody is the point that you just made. You know, if you're a family with means, 
you have choice. I mean, you can buy a home in a, in a nice neighborhood that has pretty good public schools, or you know, you can move to that neighborhood and, and, and rent a home there. But if you're a family without means, or if you're a family that's uh, just a middle class family, and particularly during a pandemic when uh, there's a lot of economic hardship going around with the forced closure of businesses, a lot of families are struggling. And I think what the pandemic has laid bare is just how inflexible this K-12 system is and just how much uh, families need alternative choices if they want to ensure that their children are getting a full-time quality education. Yeah, I would assume you're seeing that the the demand spike even more than it has over the last 10 or 15 years in in terms of choice programs doubling, as you were describing, just because, you know, you're seeing some school systems open running parallel to big urban school systems, but not Mm -hmm. just urban school systems that are closed and they're all operating off the same science. So why is is my kid's friend who goes to the private school, why is he in class and my kid in, in the public school, the neighborhood school is not? Well, Dan, that's the teachers unions for you. The teachers unions in this country, the state and the national teachers unions, they've got a lot of these big urban school districts uh, in a vice, and uh, they call the shots. You know, it's a little frustrating when you're when you're a parent and uh, and you're watching the news and you're hearing everybody say, hey, you know, we need to follow the science. Well, if we're going to follow the science, let's follow the science. And mm-hmm. uh, there is no reason that a lot of these big school districts uh, shouldn't be open. And, and you're finding right now well, what you've seen over the last uh, six months or so, seven months since the pandemic began is you see a lot of really shameful tactics on the part of the teachers unions. And it's really unfortunate because, um, you know, the kids that are being most harmed by this are kids from lower income families uh, and kids with special needs who desperately need in-person instruction. And this is why the system has to adapt. The system has to become more flexible. We have to be willing to give parents more options. Policymakers need to hear this. Uh, On Monday before the new year last week, uh, President Trump signed an executive order that allowed state and local agencies to draw from $1.7 billion in federal funds from community service block grant, uh, the community service block block grant program, CESBG, to provide emergency learning scholarships to disadvantaged families for use by any child without access to in-person learning. Um, That, that, you know, is a positive thing for states and and localities that are inclined to be uh, looking to expand uh, opportunity scholarships for kids. Um, But that can be a fleeting thing, too, with a new administration that's perhaps more aligned with the teachers union. And I wonder what, what, you know, your perspective and your focus at American Federation for Children, is it federal and state or is the federal government sort of anything you get from the federal government is gravy, but we really want to dig into states that are pursuing these innovations and uh, to try to help those innovations blossom? You know, Dan, it's mostly the latter. There's, you know, obviously most of the uh, m- most of education is is funded at the state and local level. That's where most of the funds are. Education is best when it's closest, when it's on the ground. But the federal government can play a useful and constructive role because uh, the federal government allocates about seventy billion dollars annually for K-12 education. We applaud what the president did by trying to make these community service block grants available so that governors can use these funds. Uh, to provide scholarships for families. We think this is a terrific idea. $1.7 billion across the country is not is not a lot of money, but it could be super helpful uh, in a number of places around the country. And um, we're going to be working very hard over the next 15 days 
<laughs> to try to encourage every governor spent. in the country to spend <laughs> yes. that money. Uh, because yes. uh, sadly, I believe the Biden administration will rescind uh, the executive order because, uh, uh, you know, uh, both uh, uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris, uh, you know, they're they're kind of in the pocket of the teachers union. So um, if governors are going to get to, if governors can be able to use these funds, they need to be able to do it quickly. So we're going to be urging them to do that. Even your governor. Uh, well, Godspeed with that. Uh, <laughs> John Schilling, president of American Federation for Children. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much. Thank you. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. In uh, his 1841 book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Scottish journalist Charles McKay observed that men go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly and one by one. I think that's right. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, psychologists who will tell you that's right. Uh, and those at least with some experience of dealing with folly do situations. Uh, I think of sort of the branched Vidians or uh, some other cult at a smaller level. So uh, only recover their senses slowly and one by one. That uh, is probably not going to be led on an, even an individualized basis by a lot of politicians, heads of state in particular, as we saw from Bojo last uh, afternoon, yesterday afternoon, Boris Johnson announcing a renewed lockdown in the UK through the middle of February. You may only leave home for limited reasons permitted in law, such as to shop for essentials, to work if you absolutely cannot work from home, to exercise, to seek medical assistance. And it's um, a combination of things, perhaps, or certainly a combination of variables to consider. One is the incentives that are presented to politicians, as we've seen play out so far, at least. There is no consequence to overreaching on lockdowns, overreaching on regulation of people's personal conduct. And so the incentives are to err on that side. And it turns out uh, not only are there no negative consequences, there's all sorts of uh, political and potentially financial Andrew Cuomo benefits to doing so. If you engender enough fear, if you have a big enough herd that you've facilitated madness within. It seems to me that's where we're at. And so for those who are thinking as we were discussing a little bit earlier on the show, that at some point there's sort of going to be this mass awakening. People wake up, you know, that sort of plaintive wail. People wake up and there's going to be, it's going to spread like a brush fire through the population, the people that are jogging with masks on and so forth. I don't think so. And I'm not talking about like between now and when we reach herd immunity through the combination of vaccine and infection. I mean for generation or maybe generations to come. That's my view. Let's talk to another journalist who's become an expert in this space because he's a good journalist. 
but the the but, but the reason he's become an expert is because he's a good journalist. And I make that distinction. Speaking of Charles McKay, the Scottish journalist here who wrote this uh, magnum opus, really, it's still relevant almost two hundred years later, one hundred eighty years later, is because he's intellectually curious and he does what this so-called journalists of the D.C. press corps today, at least, don't do. He doesn't pretend to be omniscient. The funniest thing of all, some of these thinly educated or overeducated, but thinly credentialed in terms of capacity to problem solve, run around behaving like they're omniscient. That, you know, that they've gone to the Tony Fauci Public Affairs School of Epidemiology, so now they can converse on the topic with the same depth that uh, any other medical professional, public health professional has on the topic, and, and thus they can dismiss questions from laymen like us in the body politic. It's It would be comical if the implications weren't so serious. Of course, I'm talking about Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter and author of the number one bestseller, Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns, uh, combined parts one through three, death counts, lockdowns, and masks, uh, which you can uh, get at Amazon, Amazon. Uh, you can get it at Amazon because he pitched a, a fit over Amazon, delisting him from Amazon, and they relented, and good for him. Alex Berenson, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Of course, of course. Um, so, um, uh, well, I just want to get your reaction to, you know, when are people going to wake up You know, the, the, from people who are tr- trying to be measured, trying to be thoughtful about this, maybe even are a, a little bit more dogmatic in opposing lockdowns. When are people going to wake up? And the answer, my answer is there, a lot of them are not. I mean, I'm a tiny, I'm actually a tiny bit more optimistic than you are today. I'm not sure that's been true in the past, and and, and there's a, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not more optimistic about the media, by the way, but I'm more optimistic about about average folks. Um, uh, look, we are not seeing a move by the, the state governors in places like Illinois and New York to impose uh, hard lockdowns uh, again, and I think that's because they're looking at their finances and knowing that they can't, that even if the Democrats win in the Senate, um, maybe they'll get a few months of bailout, but what's happening to the, you know, to, to people leaving New York for, uh, for Florida or Illinois for Florida and Texas or California for Texas is, is catastrophic on the high end, you know, these high end wage earners who, who account for so much of state tax collections that, that these states, I mean, they're, they're incredibly expensive to run and they can't, they can't afford to keep driving those people away. And those people are leaving. Okay, they are leaving. And, and, and what we're seeing with the vaccine is incredible. The fact that healthcare workers, the people who are supposed to want this the most, okay, are rejecting it. Not, not, not all of them, but that, that a significant minority of them are rejecting the vaccine is incredible. The, you know, I mean, the, the vaccine, people are voting now. They have a chance to vote on something, right? They couldn't vote on lockdown. They couldn't vote on the mask mandates because if you want to go shopping, you have to wear a mask. But you can vote essentially on whether you're going to get a vaccine. Now, now the public health establishment may try to change that. They may try to mandate vaccines, and that would be a big mistake and a big fight if it happens. But right now, it's it's not mandatory, and people are saying no. They're saying they're saying I think the dangers of the vaccine and the unknowns about the vaccine are worse than COVID. And that's an incredible thing to see because it tells me that people under, you know, under 75, under 80, have a real understanding of what the risks are to them and how low they are. And they don't want to take a chance on a vaccine. Now, maybe, maybe you'll say the, the correct age to set that at is 65, but, but it's, it's, not the, it's not 
it's not 40, it's not 50, okay? We know the vaccines can have severe side effects to people who, are, who, who receive them. And we know COVID isn't that dangerous to healthy people under, and when I say not that dangerous, I mean really not that dangerous to healthy people under 40 and, and even 50. So, so people, people, whether or not they know the numbers, they have some idea of this at this point. And more and more people, I think, are just living their lives right now as best they can. And they're putting on a mask, and they may think the mask helps them, or they may think they just have to wear it, but they're going on. It's actually, and, and, and so now you're seeing in places like New York and Chicago, they're trying to get the schools open because they know they have to do that. It's, it's the media that's dragging its feet at this point, I think. I'd like to think this. I'd like to, I'd like to be more optimistic than you are today. Well, yeah, right. And it made the vaccine look worse as opposed to being able to say 95 percent safe and effective. In addition, and, and frankly, remember, you know, they're coming from a place that they've been, been encouraged to come from by the political media establishment, which is to say everybody's equally vulnerable. That's the that's the you know, that's sort of the original sin of all of this, saying everybody's equally vulnerable when that's not true by a factor of a thousand or so. And, and, and let's be clear, the vaccine does seem to prevent the transmission of COVID. Like, it looks good in that way. It looks effective. The question is really on the safety side, not the effective. When we come back with Alex Berenson, uh, I want to get his take on what he thinks public opinion would be, how it would change if people had a better handle on the scale and nature of COVID-19-related deaths, as well as the uh, impact of lockdown policies, both impact in terms of extent as well as duration. More with Alex Berenson. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. No more, Mr. Clean. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Alex Berenson on the Dan Prof Show. Alex is a former New York Times reporter who covered the pharmaceutical in- industry, an author of Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And we were talking about the mRNA vaccine. Be- and, but, but I wanted to give you the chance to make clear. It's not because you're an anti-vaxxer. It's because it's unproven and you're doing a risk assessment based on the risk that COVID infection presents. That's correct. And if a vaccine that doesn't have all these short-term adverse events comes out, I'd probably take it because, you know, I'm, a, I'm at low risk, but I'm at some risk. Whether or not I'd let my kids take it, I don't know because kids are at such minuscule risk from COVID. You know, it's almost impossible even to figure out what the risk to healthy kids is from COVID. And so it might be better just to let them get it, like getting a cold and get over it. But for me, yeah, I, I, but my kids have been vaccinated with everything. One of the sad things about this for me is it's made me realize that maybe the anti-vaxxers have a point in general, although I, I'm not saying they do. Because I didn't know what I didn't know about vaccines until this started. But no, I've been properly vaccinated. My kids have been vaccinated. But, you know, those weren't mRNA vaccines. They were just ordinary vaccines that have been in circulation for generations in most cases. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to, I thought, uh, an interesting comparison by an economist of calling COVID-19 our Vietnam the, the comparisons are manifest. Uh, one, sort of the sunk cost mentality that politicians are susceptible to. Uh, we've, made, we've made such a commitment to Vietnam, we need to continue escalating. We've made such a commitment to lockdowns, we need to continue escalating or continue 
repurposing lockdowns. We don't have an exit strategy. This is all we know. So we're going to continue to send in troops in the form of public health professionals excoriating you for visiting your family on Christmas. The poor and the working class, the ones bearing the brunt of the cost of waging the war on COVID-19. The long tail, the generational impact this is going to have on young people, not sent off to war, but forced to hide in their homes and not socialize and be what young people are supposed to be. I, I just wanted to get, you know, that, that I could, I don't know, you know, the, all this war metaphors that are always used by politicians. I don't think that they'll enjoy this war metaphor as, as well. And I usually don't, but for this one, I kind of see some of the interesting comparisons to make it concrete. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think I tweeted back in April that I thought the only two public policy mistakes you could compare this to in the 20th century were in the U.S., Vietnam, and worldwide, World War One. This is a disaster, and it's gone on and on and on. I think you're right, though. I think the Vietnam analogy makes even more sense now in the fact that it has gone on for so long, and we don't seem to have an exit strategy. And why do they continue to double down? It is clear now, it should be clear to everyone that the hospitals can manage this, right? They've been managing it. They are doing their jobs for us, and the hospitals are running, and not just for COVID. People who need other care can get it. If you get in a car crash, you're going to get to the ER, you're going to get treated. We are functioning as a society, despite what the media wants to pretend, and despite what some you know, political leaders want to pretend. Why can't we just acknowledge that fact and acknowledge that, yes, COVID is, you know, is dangerous to some people and unfortunately has killed, you know, a fair number of elderly people and and some younger people, but we're going on with our lives. I, I don't understand why that position is considered so impossible just to say it like that. The uh, emphasis you placed in your interview with Rogan that I referenced was in terms of like, if you had to pick one, the worst public policy decision that's been made throughout the last 10 months, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. I guess the initial lockdown. I mean, I, that's hard to say that because we were afraid in March, right? So I, I, guess, I mean, I guess I'd say in April and May, not being more honest with people, right? And not saying we're going to move forward with this. We can do this. We're not going to try to scare you about your kids. We're going to get the schools open. We're going to get back to life. But, but I mean, in terms of specific, you know, sort of the live with this is general. But, but you, you, the emphasis you placed when you were talking with Rogan was on schools. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, that, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the, the one, yes, that, that's been horrible. And, and now we've scared all these teachers in Switzerland who are, you know, who are, I want to say are scared. I'd rather have them be scared than just be cynical and think that teaching at home is an easier way to get a paycheck. But, and we're destroying the public schools. We're destroying them. And, you know, wealthy parents, white, you know, upper middle class parents, uh, you know, who, who can get their kids out are doing it. Um, you know, and, and they're leaving they're, they're leaving the public schools in even worse shape in you know in big cities than they were. And I don't know how we fix that. I mean, you know, you you, you heard me thinking about Vietnam, and the and the line is, you know, we should have declared victory and gone home, right? And that's I mean, that's sort of what we need to do with this. Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, author of the number one bestseller, pick up his stuff, Amazon.com, unreported truths about COVID nineteen and lockdowns. Combined parts one through three, death counts, lockdowns, and masks. And uh, I, you told Rogan you might have one forthcoming on vaccines as well. I think it's time for one on vaccines. Um, but, uh, you know, let's hope that, that sort of the quiet rebellion continues. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. We're not seeing a loud, you know, loud rebellion right now. But I do think people, people have had enough. A lot of people have had enough. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Appreciate it.
listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, we ran out of time with Alex Berenson, but I wanted to uh, continue on the topic of COVID and K-12 through specifically, just because we still have uh, teachers' unions disseminating propaganda, the help of their uh, comm shops, major dailies, network affiliates, and so forth, other cultural institutions. Uh, teacher standing has actually increased during this, and I think you have to, in terms of popular approval, respect. Now, I think you have to drill down a little bit, uh, segment out uh, kids who are in the classroom and different attitudes about uh, teachers, depending on the particular circumstances of the family. Look at it by socioeconomic data. That could be interesting. Private versus public, that could be interesting. Uh, Urban versus suburban or rural, that could be interesting. But regardless, it it demands, I suppose, a, a reset in terms of what we know to be true and have known to be true for some time. This is at least the prevailing wisdom based on the actual real-world research that's been done, including peer-reviewed. But it's, it's curious that is is impressed. I mean, even the sainted Tony Fauci says kids should be in the classroom. CDC Director Redfield says kids should be in the classroom. But somehow that just doesn't penetrate the consciousness of these uh, secular branch Davidians in places like Chicago or London or L.A. or New York City, does it? doesn't seem to. I don't get it. I mean, I get why champagne socialists who have the resources to have choice so they can work remotely and they can send their kids to the schooling school of their choice so that their kids don't have to suffer in isolation or Zoom education the way that those with fewer resources and thus fewer choices do. I get that, but I I guess I I don't get why there isn't more pushback, whether the press covers it or not. You know, in the digital age, it'll be found. Not a lot of press coverage about uh, 500, 1,000 people protesting uh, lockdown policies in the streets of Toronto, but we found it. Not a lot of press coverage about uh, thugs, police acting as thugs in Quebec, dragging a man out of his home, getting into a screaming match with an elderly woman because six people had gathered over the holiday in a house. That was their crime. Illegal gathering in terms of number, perhaps even uh, idiot circles in their home. That's the next thing to be installed, I'm sure. We know about this. So how is it that teachers' unions and the politicians they own get away with ignoring the wealth of evidence that demands kids be in school. Maybe we should revisit it. This from Sky News. This is back in November. Uh, This is an an analysis of health records of 9 million working-age adults in the U.K. And what does it show? What's the the analysis show? That um, those... Working-age adults living with secondary school-age children were no more likely than adults without children to be admitted to the hospital or die. Adults living with primary school-age children were not even more likely to be infected. Professor Liam Smith of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine said, if we can keep schools open, it's a really important thing for this generation of young people. You don't say. 
but we have to look at the possible risks. Okay. The take-home message is there is no evidence of harmful effect of living with kids of school age. So it sort of blows up one of the cover stories of the teachers' unions and the politicians they own, doesn't it? How about um, National Geographic? You know, this is, I'm not talking about conservative columnists. Or, you know, studies is reported in outlets like National Geographic. Uh, in the midst of the worst surge of COVID-19 cases in the United States, many state and local officials are again wrestling with the hot-button issue of whether to shut down schools. This is in December, December 10th, a month ago. Why are they wrestling with the hot-button issue? It shouldn't be a hot-button issue, and they shouldn't be wrestling. Emerging research confirms that schools aren't the primary drivers of outbreaks. The results from an ice, a study in Iceland provides definitive evidence of how much children contribute to the coronavirus spread. Uh, they, um, uh, a, a human... Uh, genomics company in Reykjavik monitored every adult and child in the country who was quarantined after potentially being exposed this spring using contact tracing and genetic sequencing to trace links between various outbreak clusters. The 40,000 person study found that children under 15 were about half as likely as adults to be infected and only half as likely as adults to transmit the virus to others. Mm -hmm. The European center for disease prevention and control. This is an agency of the EU Executive summary of their assessment of the available research. The negative physical, mental health, and educational impact of proactive school closures on children, as well as the economic impact on society more broadly, likely outweigh the benefits. Likely outweigh the benefits. Costs greater than benefits. Children between 1 and 18 years of age have lower rates of hospitalization, severe hospitalization, and death, and do all other age groups. Younger children appear to be less susceptible to infection, and when infected, less often lead to onward transmission than older adults and, oh, than older children and adults, I should say. I mean, we talked about the Yale study of, what was it, 50,000-plus daycare centers that continued operation during the outbreak. And what did the Yale researchers find? No difference between uh, those uh, daycare workers uh, in, that were uh, uh, that were, were minding children, those daycare operations that were open, and the larger adult population. No difference in COVID infection rate. So what, I'm sorry, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? What did I say last hour when we were talking about um, leaving old people in nursing homes and long-term care facilities in isolation? The Harvard Medical School professor said we're going to look back on this policy choice and say, what the hell were we doing? Well, there's a lot of people that are going to look back on the policy choice of allowing teachers unions and craven politicians beholden to them to shut down schools. And uh, people, whether they want to hold themselves accountable or not, there will be others who say, I remember what you said and did. And so will your kids. What the hell were you doing? What the hell were we doing in Chicago, in New York, in L.A., tolerating this? The 
the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Well, it turns out that uh, Joe Biden definitely picked the right running mate. They are simpatico when it comes to being a fabulist and a plagiarist. Kamala Harris interviewed by Elle magazine for a feature uh, published uh, end of last year. Recalled uh, this story as uh, memorialized by the hagiographic uh, staff writer for Elle. Senator Kamala Harris started her life's work young. She laughs from her gut, the way you would with family. Good grief. As she remembers being wheeled through an Oakland, California civil rights march in a stroller with no straps, with her parents and her uncle. At some point, she fell from the stroller. And the adults, caught up in the rapture of protest, just kept on marching. By the time they noticed little Kamala was gone and doubled back, she was understandably upset. My mother tells the story about how I'm fussing, Harris told Elle magazine. And she's like, baby, what do you want? What do you need? And I just looked at her and I said, freedom. Well, it turns out that um, that story struck a chord with uh, an editor for the Canadian publication McLean's. And uh, it was eerily reminiscent of a story told by Martin Luther King in a 1965 interview that King gave to Playboy, in which he said, and I'm quoting King, I will never forget a moment in Birmingham when a white policeman accosted a little Negro girl, seven or eight years old, who was walking in a demonstration with her mother. What do you want? The policeman asked her gruffly. And the little girl looked at him straight in the eye and answered, feed them. She could even pronounce it, but she knew it. It was beautiful. Many times when I have been in, been in sorely trying situations, the memory of that little one has come into my mind and has buoyed me. So that little girl was apparently Kamala Harris, according to Kamala Harris. Although instead of Birmingham, it was Oakland, California. I guess maybe just uh, a eerie coincidence. Two young girls living parallel lives. Kamala Harris is a parody of Maya Rudolph parodying Kamala Harris. The funt. Funt, right? I suppose, too, uh, being precocious as she was, and so cool, effervescent, laughing from her gut the way you would with family, writes Elle magazine. I suppose she was probably smoking a joint at the time, too. Perfect running mate. Another imposter just like joe biden another shill who will say and do whatever one whatever she believes just as whatever joe biden believed he needed to say and do to last just a bit a little bit longer to hold on to his sinecure for the next bigger better deal a two peas in a pod joe biden and kamala harris this is dan prof is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, 
fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show and one of the uh, more entertaining and uh, name-drop-laden editorials on American culture I've read in a long time. Uh, excerpting here. Somehow being cool blew up in America's face. Cool became cringe and cringes everywhere you look. Yes, through Netflix, Disney, Penguin, Random House and Apple, Facebook and Twitter, and by a million other means, Americans are more broadcast, published, disseminated, stubbornly world-dominating, plottingly imitated. Yes, the United States still gives off a massive light, but it's not the hopeful shine of a beacon on a hill. It's the flickering glare of a dumpster fire. To uh, expound upon how cool became cringe and perhaps how cruel became kind and vice versa. Pleased to be joined by Will Lloyd, editorial assistant at Unheard and contributor to The Spectator. His piece, From Cool to Cringe, What Happened, What's Happened to America Culture. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi there, Dan. Uh, lovely to join you. Um, yes, yeah, And great. I, I'm, I'm sorry to be the bearer of, um, of bad news about American culture. <laughs> yes, well, um, it hadn't gone, gone completely unnoticed by me, but I hadn't uh, had it, uh, you know, shoved down my throat in a couple of 1,500 <laughs> words like you did, <laughs> covering, uh, I don't know, the last 30 years and everybody who has uh, contributed or or not, more to the point, uh, in particularly more recently. Um, cool to, to cringe. What, you know, give us the trajectory of, of cool to cringe. Well, for me, um, this story about what happened to American culture is it's almost a sort of half century. Uh, I, I think often about um, about the time uh, sort of 1960 and America is locked in this conflict uh, with the Soviet Union. And there's a moment in this conflict where the Soviet Union's premier, Nikita Khrushchev, uh, actually visited Los Angeles. And there's a sort of legend about what happened when Khrushchev visited Los Angeles. He was in a plane above, uh, above Beverly Hills. And apparently Khrushchev looked down and he saw all of the swimming pools. He saw all of the Chevrolets. He saw these beautiful villas. And he thought, how is the Soviet Union going to beat America? How is it going to beat this wealth, this confidence? And in this time of wealth and confidence, something remarkable, I think, happened in American culture. Um, in the next sort of 10 years, you had people like uh, and then and this is regardless of what you think of their politics. I, I think these are genuinely cool people. You've got JFK, you've got Sidney Poitier, you've got Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. uh, Malcolm X, uh, Norman Mailer, uh, Lenny Bruce. And American culture had this kind of macho, had this snap and crackle uh, that has just completely disappeared. And so what I wrote about was how and why did this disappear? Um, and, and, um, and right, right. You, how, how Malcolm X became Ibram Kendi and, and, uh, and Joan Baez <laughs> yeah. became Taylor Swift. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, well so, I mean, when you, and when you, first of all, let's get into a definition here. Um, when you say cool, uh, you mean independent. You mean what? I mean I, a sort of ironic attitude towards life, risk, and danger. Um, a sort of nonchalance, mm-hmm. um, being above things. Uh, I think even actually, if you go back far enough, I didn't put this in the article, but Benjamin Franklin writes about coolness. 
And coolness is not cracking under pressure. And I think if you've looked at America, particularly in the last 10 years, nobody is able to, to take the pressure anymore in America, it seems to me. Everybody is complaining. Everybody is whining. Everybody is criticizing each other. Everybody's attacking each other. Nobody can keep their cool anymore. Nobody has it. Um, and it's just so stark and apparent if you're an outsider to America, American culture watching it, uh, which is what you know, half the world's population is. Right and so, okay and so so okay so we get I get what uh, what cool is and some of the exemplars of that from a bygone era and then so you know what did you, what what happened where we went from some of those figures you mentioned to as Joan Didion said of uh, of uh, Obama uh, cargo cult like followings of people who perhaps uh, were um, pantomiming actual cool people from a from a previous era. Yeah, I think Obama, a lot of the elements of American cool were, were displayed by Obama. Um, but the society which Obama was sort of produced by was no longer you know, flush with wealth and the confidence of, say, like the early 1960s. So you have Obama trying to be cool, but all around him, America seems to be, you know, it's wherever you look. Um, you know, the American celebrities, the celebrity class, say, or the American economy, or um, even America's like military prowess, all of these elements which were there in the early 60s were no longer there when Obama was there. And so when Obama's off the scene uh, in, the, in, in the Democratic Party, I think you get these people who try and copy Obama. So you get Mayor Pete, and you get um, uh, Corey, Cory Booker, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and Beto, you know, Beto, uh, Beto O'Rourke, you know, there's just literally nothing cool about Beto. I remember he he live streamed himself, you know, on a trip to the orthodontist. And it's just so skin-crawlingly embarrassing to watch these people try and be like Obama. And I think even Obama himself, it turns out, you know, if you listen to the podcast, he he was on his wife's podcast, and they talk about nothing. It's just empty, you know, vapid. You, you mentioned um, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens noted uh, how everyone thought Obama was an excellent speaker and nobody could remember anything he said because he was a he was a quotidian cliche machine is what he was. Uh, but it, it was so it was sort of syntax and and visual presentation more than anything substance. And I wonder if that's sort of the devolution from cool to cringe is there's there's, you know, the, 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 not everything is sort of the not everything that. Uh, that shimmers is gold. And, and so that's sort of, there's no, there's no there there like there was perhaps with actual talented, creative, nonchalant artists of uh, previous eras. Yeah. You don't, you know, so, so this summer, for instance, okay, we had in American cities, these enormous protests and riots. It's this, enor- it's this it was a huge moment all around the world. Then you get, you know, uh, in London, we had BLM protests. Um, it spread everywhere. It was this kind of mass, major sort of meme. And I thought, if American culture was still was still cool, it would at this exact moment it would produce a sort of Norman Mailer, a writer who could go into American cities uh, and and take this moment and produce produce art from it. Again, regardless of whether you agree with the politics of it, yeah, yeah, something a healthy culture would produce something that would stand the test of time, like Norman Mailer's books from the sixties uh, or Tom Wolfe's books. Um, about racial politics in America, which is still f- fantastic reads. And I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for that American writer to pop up and actually say, this is where we are in America. 
this is what's really going on and taking all of the criticism and attention that comes with that because that's what those old writers, those cool writers could do that. They could take the pressure. And I just don't see it because everybody is too busy sort of, uh, you know, whining on Twitter. It's just very, very odd to watch this sort of um, process. Yeah, I think I think there's something that's uh, uh, very salient about the observation that no one rises above, and 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 part of it is demeanor, but also part of it is sort of like quality of work product. So you're talking about uh, the Andy Warhols and the Roy Lichtensteins of the '60s, and. And and what do we have today in the, against the backdrop of the unrest you're describing? We have Nike doing Colin Kaepernick iconography. Uh, I mean, it's just it's it's also sort of schmaltzy and uh, and surface skimmy. It's it's sentimental as well, and it's very yeah, very for sure. Um, I, I I'm not sure how Americans became sort of so so babyish, you know. I, I, I thought there was a kind of toughness about Americans. I think probably there probably is, you know, somewhere still a kind of toughness, a residual toughness about Americans. But it seems to me that there's a kind well, of well, savage well, sentiment. Sorry. No, no. I mean, I, I, th- yeah, I, I will we'll think about, and I mean, this is just coming to mind because, you know, sort of uh, the Obama as an inflection point. But I mean, think of the, one of the avatars of the Obama years was pajamas boy to sell Obamacare. Yeah, and then uh, and then you know what wasn't very cool about that was that um, you know despite having you know the world's best technology companies, um, the Obamacare you know they never they never involved them in Obamacare and the website crashed almost as soon. What was I mean the story about Obamacare was there was the online rollout and it, the website didn't work. And I, right. I think I know this isn't it's not necessarily a cultural point, but to me it's like you can't really be cool. If so many things are failing all the time, and there are just dozens of examples of them all over, all over American, um, uh, you know, life. And I wonder yeah. whether that is actually at, at the root of this, is that if you're surrounded by failure, you can't be confident. If you can't be confident, then how can you be cool? Will Lloyd, editorial assistant at Unheard, contributor to The Spectator. Will, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Dan. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, as we're consumed with electoral politics at present and for much of the last year in combination with COVID, the cultural revolution continues unabated. This story from Adam Hoffman, who's a sophomore at Princeton University. George Will, too hot for Princeton. <laughs> You've heard George Will on this show a number of times. It's uh, funny and not funny. It's funny because it's ridiculous. It's not funny because it's ridiculous. Uh, but here's the thing. The left is always innovating when it comes to suppression, uh, when it comes to, frankly, their impulses in the direction of a totalitarianism. And so it rather than have to endure the controversy on campus of very public disinvitations, you know, Condi Rice being disinvited from, I think it was Rutgers, uh, or maybe it was Brandeis, uh, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other these days. 
and uh, other high-profile speakers invited to speak. Then students find out about it. Then they pitch a fit, and then the university relents. And rather than go through that melodrama, what they have now, what they're doing now, is having speakers' councils pre-qualify speakers that uh, students or student groups want to bring to campus and uh, eliminate them from consideration on the front end so you don't have to deal with the controversy on the back end. And that's exactly what happened, as Adam Hoffman describes in his piece in National Review, where a speaker's council deemed George Will too controversial for the campus of Princeton and uh, worried that Princeton students could not handle George Will's arguments. That doesn't speak particularly well of the Ivy League, but it does speak to the need to uh, support the work of the Fund for American Studies, among other organizations, that's for sure. And for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Roger Ream, the president of the Fund for American Studies. Roger, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be with you this morning, Dan. Or this good evening, to have you rather. back. In, yeah, good to have you back in the new year. Well, um, I mean, I guess just stories like uh, George Will being, uh, you know, uh, too hot for Princeton, as I said, is uh, why the Fund for American Studies exists in part. Yeah, uh, we uh, have been working very hard to, along with others in our space, to try to promote free speech and intellectual diversity on campus. It's shied away and uh, attacked all over the country, unfortunately, despite efforts to promote what are called the Chicago Principles to support economic, excuse me, uh, intellectual diversity. Uh, conservative speakers are quite often uh, kept from speaking on campus because they might trigger students and hurt their feelings. Uh, it's been uh, quite a battle. Uh, and I, some days I think we're winning. Other days, you know, you see just these these outrageous uh, things taking place. Well, the silver lining in, in this uh, rather dismal story is that you had a, a sophomore named Adam Hoffman who wrote about it and brought this to our attention. Thus, we're discussing it. So you have people on campus that are willing to stand up in the face of the the orthodoxy um, and uh, say, well, how does this make any sense? Uh, and, and that, you know, ideally, uh, as a graduate of one of your programs, as I mentioned before in our discussions, the uh, Comparative Political and Economic Systems uh, program, ideally you have students that uh, come from the right, the left, the center left, center right, and uh, they come to some sort of agreement about not agreeing, but agreeing to not agree in public and not agree while listening to each other. And so you could have a conservative and a, and a left-leaning student at Princeton who think that George Will should probably be heard. And if you want to bring some uh, left speaker, then you go ahead and bring that speaker and we'll listen to him or her, too. Yeah, that's the way it should be. Uh, that was really what was behind the free speech movement at Berkeley back in the 60s. It was to bring in uh speakers from all over the spectrum to let their voices be heard and uh it's uh a shame that uh the current generation seems to be so triggered by someone expressing a viewpoint that uh they object to and uh there have been some brave students uh like you mentioned who have been willing to shine a light on this absurd uh trend on campus to keep uh the views of dissent off the campus and, and, uh, we've and, noticed. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, well, and, and of course, uh, to, to borrow from Andrew Sullivan, since we're all on one big college campus now yeah. in American culture, it's not limited to the college campus. And so this is where uh, your fellows program and, and uh, the graduates of Fund for American Studies programs uh, have an impact in, in the nonprofit sector and public sector and media in, in business. 
Yeah, just in the last few years, we've added to our programs a much stronger emphasis uh, about the importance of free speech, the importance of being willing to hear views you might disagree with, uh, to be challenged. I mean, it's a shame that so many students who come to our programs from college campuses around the country have never been exposed to the ideas we're teaching, ideas that you know are responsible for America's great prosperity and for being an exceptional country. Just calling an America, America an exceptional country these days on a college campus probably sends you into a detention or to be condemned by right. the student government. Uh, you know, and now you're right. It's one big college campus with Congress this week deciding that the word uh, that male and female language has to be struck from the House rules and uh, what I think I was told that the the chaplain had to end his prayer with amen and a women. When he opened Congress on uh, Monday or Sunday, uh, yeah, that's that's right. The word uh, is no longer allowed. Right, uh, consistent with the uh, the language rules that uh, Pelosi has instituted to eliminate uh, offensive words like mother, yeah. daughter, father, son. Right. Uh, I, I but, just wish they'd eliminate the word mandate because I have too many <laughs> mandates and yes, it, as it is. <laughs> right. Um, well, so so uh, t- tell us a little bit more. I mean, so, so the the cultural battle in a, in a in a, a Biden era of a of Biden presidency, the cultural battle. Um, uh, the intellectual battle is going to be that much more pitched. And so uh, what does the Fund for American Studies have in store to uh, meaningfully participate? Well, we're, we're definitely uh, picking up the pace of programming this year. We're, we, we learned last year that it was we were able to transform so many of our programs to online platforms because of the pandemic and the difficulty of doing in-person programs. So this year we're offering both in-person and online programs, which enable us to reach vastly larger numbers of young people, both expanding high school programs for students and teachers. We found more and more high school economics teachers reaching out to us to learn how to teach economics online, so we're doing programs for them. Uh, The demand among high school and college students for in-person programs is still very strong. Uh, We find that our applications for our 2021 summer programs are running uh, Ahead of last year, students want to be in person. They don't want to do things remote. They're they're tired of remote learning. Uh, we're expanding our reach too by doing many more ebooks. Uh, you know, we've had some young Venezuelans traveling college campuses. I think they've been on your program to talk about yes. uh, what Venezuela is like and uh, try to alert American young people to the fact that socialism. Uh, will destroy the lives of so many people and impoverish a country and to reject socialism. So those are among the things we're hoping to, you know, just continue to do at an expanded scale in this coming year. He is uh, Roger Ream, president of the Fund for American Studies. Roger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be here, Dan. Thanks. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. We were talking before the break with Fund for American Studies President Roger Ream about the cultural revolution rolling on. For example, George Will being too hot for the campus of Princeton. Princeton undergrads can't handle the uh, multisyllabic stylings of uh, George Will, Pulitzer Prize winning George Will, too controversial. Well, of course, we talked about this a bit yesterday, but uh, I want to talk about it some more. And that was uh, the opening prayer to, uh, uh, to the, the prayer, I should say, to open the 117th Congress from one uh, Representative Emanuel Cleaver. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. A man and a woman. Mm-hmm. A man and a woman. Uh, a woman technically would be no woman, wouldn't it be? But anyway, I digress because, of course, the point is inaccuracy. It's sentimentality. And it's consistent with the language changes uh, as part of the uh, House Rules Package for the 117th Congress. Ma Revolution. You had Mao's Revolution in China. We got Ma Revolution, as in Ma Pelosi in America. Uh, Wall Street Journal excerpting it. Strike father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, first cousin, nephew, niece, husband, wife, father-in-law, mother-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, stepfather, stepmother, stepson, stepdaughter, stepbrother, stepsister, half-brother, half-sister, grandson, and granddaughter. Insert instead parent-child, sibling, parent-sibling, first cousin, siblings, cousin, sibling's child, spouse, parent-in-law, child-in-law, sibling-in-law, step-parent, step-child, step-sibling, half-sibling, or grandchild. For himself or herself, insert themselves. Now they miss something. Harvard is, uh, you know, on the hunt here. Uh, uh, there's no such thing as a pregnant woman. There are birthing people, because we know that men can be pregnant in 2020, 2021 America. Hmm. Uh, excellent piece over the holidays by James Lindsay, friend of the show, uh, at his uh, site, New Discourses psychopathy and the origins of totalitarianism in which he makes the point that um, the corruption of language which we discussed yesterday uh, pseudo realities will always generate tragedy and evil on a scale that is at least proportional to the reach of their grip on power which is their chief interest whether social cultural economic political or particularly a combination of several or all of these So important to the development and tragedies of societies are these pseudo-realities when they arise and take root that it is worth outlining their basic properties and structures so they can be identified and properly resisted before they result in socio-political calamities. And he's talking about the denial of natural facts like gender. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Tooley, the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy and editor of the Institute of Religion and Democracy's Foreign Policy and National Security Journal. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, my pleasure. Um, it's the uh, reaction, your first reaction uh, to uh, a man and a woman. Uh, you uh, focus on, on what, it, uh, what it implicates about uh, the United States' civil religion. Yes, of course, uh, these prayers that Congress uh, opens its sessions with are a prime example of uh, American civil religion, going back to our founding, which I think largely is a good tradition, which makes it extra sad that uh, the congressman seemed to turn his uh, prayer into uh, a widely mocked uh, joke. And, and um, you know, w- what is wrong with... Uh 
offering a sop, even if it is a malapropism, a sop to uh, women, a sop to identitarianism, uh, a uh, a statement of equity, I'm sure Representative Cleaver would say. Well, it's a little bit silly uh, for many reasons, but uh, firstly, uh, amen, the word uh, rooted in ancient Hebrew and in the earliest parts of the Old Testament has nothing to do with man or with uh, gender, uh, so mm-hmm. it was silly to pair it with uh, a woman. Well, um, sure, but we understand from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others of her ilk that you don't have to be technically correct if you're morally correct. <laughs> well, uh, facts and reality and history don't matter from uh, that mindset, but if you uh, listen to me, his prayer, it's very actually uh, traditional uh, up until the final uh, 5% where he seemed to feel obligated to uh, uh, burn incense at the uh, Church of Woke, uh, which is unfortunate. Well, and, and when we come back, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the implications of this. Uh, this is not just sort of uh, you know, competing jargon, that there are real cultural and, uh, as uh, James Lindsay wrote about, socio-political implications of uh, what is at play here. We'll pick it up there, I should say, with Mark Tooley, president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, right after this. I'm doing all right, getting good grades, so bright. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Mark Tooley. He's the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, editor of IRD's Foreign Policy and National Security Journal as well. We were talking about uh, a man and a woman. Uh, and, um, Mark, I just wanted to get your perspective on some of the larger implications because uh, not this just being an example. I'm not, not limited to this, but this being an example of a cultural – position at play, a revolt, if you will, at play. And and it's not something I I don't think that can be localized or trivialized. This is really part of the remaking of America, much like an an American culture, much like the 1619 Project is an attempt to rewrite America's history. Well, you can't remake America without remaking religion and manipulate religion, which includes uh, uh, erasing uh, differences of male and female and uh, ultimately uh, erasing the uh, authentic uh, understanding of uh, who God is. And so perhaps defenders of Congressman Cleaver's prayer will say he's just been Flippant. It was just a quick moment, uh, but potentially, if he actually realized what he was doing, it was far more uh, malevolent and troubling uh, by attempting to manipulate religion in this way for a larger cultural and political purpose. Yeah, do you get the sense that uh, people of faith in this country are p- perhaps a little bit uh, too uh, comfortable uh, in uh, their, the belief that the, their freedom of religion will persist uh, because Amy Coney Barrett is on the high court now. Um, it seems to me that, yes, there will be cases of, of particular notoriety that uh, the court takes up to make a point to governors during uh, the COVID public health 
crisis, for example, that you can't treat churches uh, more drastically than you treat big box stores, as we've seen play out. Uh, however, I, I mean, you know, people have short memories, and we're just a, a few years removed from a former mayor of Houston who wanted to uh, essentially act as an executive editor for a local church and uh, the sermons that would be allowed. You're, you have all sorts of uh, redefinition of language and acceptable language on college campuses and in corporate C-suites and that that uh, permeate corporate institutions, nonprofit institutions. Uh, I mean, what is your uh, perspective? Uh, uh, what is your position, perspective on on freedom of religion uh, in um, in this age of uh, cultural revolution? At least a cultural revolution that is being initiated by some segment of the Jacobin left. Well, you're right. Obviously, it is uh, under threat in that traditional religion is seen as a chief obstacle, perhaps the chief obstacle by the secular left, because adherents of traditional religion look to a transcendent uh, authority, uh, which uh, is not within the purview or under the control of uh, the narrative of the secular left. Therefore, traditional religion must be uh, neutralized, marginalized, contained. And so, uh, yes, uh, I think the American people by and large still have a robust, strong support for religious freedom for all people, but uh, many of our cultural elites are increasingly hostile to it. So we do need to be on guard. Yeah, and and, and I I wonder, um, I know the focus is on on usually on government and and, uh, public officials, but what about uh, corporate interests? Uh, what about, uh, for example, big tech companies that arguably have more power than units of government, at least most units of government these days? Uh, and perhaps some who sort of believe in freedom and liberty generally, including within our with our economic pursuits, uh, are operating under a misunderstanding uh, that uh, those operators in the private sector cannot be as auto, uh, 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 well as uh, autocratic as uh, any politician in elective office well it's very bizarre that maybe uh, two-thirds of Americans uh, identify with some form of traditional religion and uh, a third or 40 percent are regular worshipers and yet uh, corporate interests seem to succumb almost automatically to much, much uh, smaller uh, special identity groups uh, who organize around sexuality or around uh, gender and to automatically embrace their causes with complete indifference to traditional religious people who outnumber those identity groups by many tens of millions. So why that is sociologically would take many books to explain, but it is a troubling trend that dates back now. 20 years or more. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's just, um, it seems to me that, 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 uh, there are many, um, even who I perhaps would identify themselves as people of faith who I don't think really appreciate that the failure to understand the real conflict between good and evil, God and the devil, um, is, is a fundamental failure 
It's a failure that uh, cannot sustain a free society. In other words, if you think it's just uh, a matter of uh, free to, freeing to being free to choose to borrow Milton Friedmanism, then um, you're perhaps just arguing from a utilitarian perspective that uh, addresses symptoms but not the root cause. Well, uh, yes, and it's important to point out that without uh, large numbers of people subscribing to some form of traditional religion, which looks to a transcendent moral authority above government and above politics, and which understands human nature to be fallen and not uh, perfectible, it's very hard for a free society and for democracy to function long term. And we're much more susceptible to uh, utopian schemes and uh, extremist ideologies. So, which is why even non-religious people who believe in human liberty and democracy should wish well to uh, forces of traditional religion in order to, to sustain a free society. He is Mark Cooley, president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, editor of IRD's Foreign Policy and National Security Journal as well. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Love stinks. The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show and uh, sort of picking up on the combined conversations we've had this hour, both with uh, Will Lloyd and uh, Mark Tooley from the Institute for Religion and Democracy about culture. Oh, here's another classic. When uh, the entertainment industry isn't woke enough, they're not big enough identitarian goons. So the artists themselves have to do it for the, uh, their entertainment overlords. Three of the acts nominated to receive the 2021 Best Children's Album Grammy have declined their nominations. Why, do you ask? I'm so glad you did. Because all five nominated acts in the category are white, according to NPR. These uh, intellectual giants, uh, Alistar Mock... Dog on Fleas and the Okie Dokie Brothers have all declined their nominations. Wow, powerful example. After this year, to have an all-white slate of nominees really seemed tone-deaf, said Alistair Mock. Joe Melander, one of the Okie Dokie Brothers, said that his group thought that it was the strongest thing we could do to stand with people of color whose albums are too often left out of the Grammy nominations. Mm-hmm. The Grammy is just not sensitive. <laughs> They're not uh, on the front seat of the uh, dentarian train. Is that right? Well, they do have somebody with the title Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer. Uh-huh. Valicia Butterfield-Jones is her name, Felicia Butterfield-Jones. She said, we saw in 2020 a racial reckoning, and the Record Academy has, quote, made a very clear and firm commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion as a part of our core values. Well... I don't know what to tell you, Miss Butterfield-Jones, but you're not uh, living up to the standard that the Okie Dokie brothers demand that you do. By the way, it is interesting to note that uh, those uh, three recording artists who declined their nominations because they're white or, and or because there were no black artists nominated in this category. 
What they didn't include is to say, I shouldn't have been nominated. This other artist should have been nominated. How could you not nominate X artist who happens to be black or Latino or Asian? They didn't say that. So they're not uh, falling on a sword on behalf of somebody they think is more qualified, more talented, more deserving. They're doing so because, frankly, they probably get more from it professionally and certainly in terms of socio-political capital in the industry, build more of a name by uh, switching out the Grammy for the Wakey. The two other nominees for the award expressed support for the decisions of the three other acts, though they did not drop out themselves. (laughs) This is really where you want culture to go. And you, you wonder why, as we were talking about with Will Lloyd, why you have this dearth of talent, artistry, coming to the fore as compared to previous generations. Maybe this little vignette about the Grammy Awards can inform that understanding. Thank you for joining us on uh, this installment of the Dan Prof Show. Big day tomorrow. We'll talk uh, outcome of the Georgia Senate race, uh, if that's decided by then. And, uh, of course, uh, everything that will transpire in D.C. on Wednesday, January 6th, when Congress convenes. Stay informed. Stay courageous so you can stay free. And stay tuned for the Dan Prof Show on Wednesday. This is the Dan Proft Show.